Great morning to everybody. In your pew Bible today, we have page 816, if you want to catch it. Otherwise, it's Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed to me, or handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This word comes from the Lord. Good morning again, church. We are in this series called Pictures of Disciple Making. Pictures of Disciple Making. And so this morning, we want to talk about this picture that you just heard Chris read to us, this picture of a yoke. We are yoked to Jesus yoked to Jesus. Do we know what a yoke is? I have a picture for you. So this is a picture of two oxen, and they are yoked together. Some sort of cows <laughs> yoked together. So you can see that that yoke is that wooden beam that kind of connects those two oxen together so that when they go out into the field, they would work together to plow that field. And what we just heard Jesus say is that His yoke is easy and light. And who among us does not need and want that to be true? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are burdened and weighed down. What yoke are you carrying today? What is it that feels like a wooden beam strapped across your shoulders this morning? What are you yoked to? Who are you connected to? What identity are you connected to? As Andrew prayed, what narrative are you connected to? Are you experiencing rest this morning? Why or why not? Does this greatest of all invitations coming from Jesus extend to you today? Come to me and find rest. Do you fit into that category? Needing rest? Do you feel inadequate? Weighed down with guilt? Discouraged? Do you fail more than you succeed? 
Do you give in to temptation more than you resist it? Do you fall short of all the standards that are placed on top of you, including your own standards? Does that little calendar on your desk where you write out your goals for the day, does it constantly never get all the goals checked off? Are you just plain stressed out this morning, exhausted, tired? Do you think that God could love you more than He does? I know God loves me, but I'm pretty sure He could love me more if I did better. Now, if your answer to all of those questions is no, no, I'm good. <laughs> I am completely at rest. Great, you can go home. You don't need this sermon. But my guess is, actually I know, that every single one of us needs rest this morning. We all need a deep refreshing. We're all running through a desert desperate for cold water. At the core, disciple-making is an ongoing invitation into the rest of Christ, the deep soul rest of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to look at four invitations from this passage, four invitations. This is a very good book. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I've read this book. Some of the other pastors have read this book. We highly recommend it. Obviously, you can tell by the title, it's based on this passage that I'm about to preach. So I am indebted to Dane Ortland for many of the things I will say this morning, okay? So I'm going to leave this copy of this book right here. Anybody who wants it, after church, you can wander up here and take that home with you and read it. We've actually ordered hundreds of copies. They just haven't come in yet. So when we get those hundreds of copies, we'll have free copies for everybody that wants one, hopefully, or a lot of us that want one. Okay, four invitations from this passage. Number one, invitation number one, discipleship, disciple-making is an invitation into childlike dependence. Disciple-making is an invitation into childlike dependence. In verses 25 and 26, we see Jesus contrast two forms of wisdom, don't we? Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Do you see the contrast? Why, the wise and understanding and the little children. The wise and the understanding can't figure out these things. These things are all the things that Matthew has written in chapter 11 about Jesus, about who Christ is, about the gospel, about the nature of Jesus and his salvation. But the wise and the understanding, it's hidden to them. But to little children, it is revealed. And so immediately we understand that in our disciple-making, in our discipleship, 
one of the things that we constantly need to be doing is asking each other, have we drifted back into the wisdom of the world, the understanding of the world, the yoke of the world, a yoke that is heavy and burdensome, a human wisdom that says, I can achieve it, I can earn it, the yoke of the law, if you will. See, when Jesus uses the metaphor of a yoke, obviously their minds can go to agriculture like, like we just did in my little picture I showed you. But yoke was a very common word for the law back then. Every good Jew knew that they should be yoked to Torah. Yoke yourself to the Torah. In Acts 15, Peter's, Peter's argument was, why would we ask Gentiles to yoke themselves to a burden that we ourselves could never bear? You see, Jesus is saying, there is a yoke that every single one of us will naturally drift back into, and it is the yoke of law-keeping. It's the yoke of earning it. It's the yoke of placing each other under all of these expectations, and when we fail to perform, when we fail to succeed, when we fail to achieve, our hearts are broken. Or when we succeed… <laughs> Our hearts are proud, aren't they? See, those are the only two ways you can go with that yoke. You either become a proud Pharisee or you become a heartbroken publican. You either become somebody who says, I am so glad that I am not like everyone else. Or you become so heartbroken that you can't even understand the grace of God. Self-righteousness, self-justification, self striving, this is the world's wisdom. Striving for status through accomplishment. Striving for holiness through moralism. Striving for peace through prosperity. Striving for happiness through pleasures. Striving for comfort through leisure. Striving for value through your productivity. Striving for rest through religion. Striving for reality through your authenticity. Striving for righteousness through your politics. Striving for meaning through your sexual identity. Striving for control through expectations. But the Bible teaches us that this kind of striving just leads us to become more manipulative, more argumentative. We have to constantly win the battle and win the fight, don't we? We have to constantly get our way. We have to virtue signal and, and become outraged when people disagree with us. This is a dead end. This is constantly living in the mental courtroom where you constantly have to defend yourself, defend your actions to yourself, to your own heart, or to the people around you. Jesus offers a better way. He reveals His way to little children. You see, Jesus once again, as He has done before, is calling us to take on the status of a child the status of a child. You see, in this culture, it's a little different than ours. In our culture, we elevate children, unless they're not born yet, right? If they're born, we elevate them. We live and die by our kids. We post pictures of our kids all over social media. We throw big birthday parties for our kids and buy them all kinds of awesome Christmas presents. But in Jesus' day, a child was a very low status. One out of every three children didn't make it past birth. Sixty percent of children didn't make it into adulthood. So they didn't attach their lives to their kids. 
because it was likely their kid wouldn't even make it. They treated their kids like they treated their slaves, actually. Which is why when the children try to come to Jesus that time, do you remember? The disciples' gut instinct is stay away from Jesus. Keep the children away. They are lower. They are less than. They are unworthy. But Jesus says, no, the whole kingdom is, is being a child. It's how you get in. You get in by saying, I am low. I am unworthy. I'm irrelevant. I'm dispensable. That's how you get in. And when you adopt that attitude, it is revealed to you. The way of Christ is revealed to you. Why don't we go this way? Why, why do we still think we have to run back to, to status through law-keeping? Because Ortland says in his book, because we have a gospel deficiency, he says. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand God's heart. We don't understand what He really thinks about us and what He has actually done for us. And so our second invitation in this passage, disciple-making is an invitation into the life of the Trinity. That's big. <laughs> That's big. This is the end game. We're going to go straight to the end game here. In verse 27, Jesus, the declaration before the invitation, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is quoting a common proverb of the day. No one knows a Father except a Son. No one knows a Son except a Father. That was a, that was a common expression. We, we say, like Father, like Son. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, that's our expression that kind of means the same thing. Jesus is saying, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you want to know the Father, you have to know me. And the only way you're going to know me is if God lets you know me. <laughs> Notice how he starts out, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. What allowed Jesus to rest? What allowed Jesus to live a life of peace? I'm talking internal shalom. Like he wasn't stressed out. Because he knew that his Father had handed all things over to him. In John's Gospel, Jesus will say, all judgment is handed over to me by my Father. He, go, he goes further. All life is handed over to me by my Father. Jesus knew that his father had entrusted him, respected him, honored him, glorified him by giving him all things. Everything that was dad's was son's. Everything that belonged to God the father belonged to God the son. They lived in an eternal relationship of deep rest. John 1.18 Jesus, from the beginning, was in the side of the Father. Do you remember that? King James, in the bosom of the Father. Ah. Have you ever just leaned on somebody? Let them put their arm around you? And all was right with the world for a couple minutes? That was Jesus' eternity. Now, if Jesus stops talking in the middle of verse 27, we are all just outsiders looking in, aren't we? 
The Trinity is the ultimate cosmic clique, the supreme holy huddle. Nobody can get in. But then comes the most glorious word in all of Scripture. Come. Come. Come all. Come to me all. Hear the invitation. Without the invitation of God, none of us would come, would we? I don't care where you are on the theological spectrum. I don't care if you're a Calvinist. I don't care if you're an Arminian. Without the preceding call of God, invitation of God, no one comes. No one comes. None of us would figure this out. None of us would chase after God. No one seeks after Him. There is none righteous. No, not one. Come. The greatest invitation in history. Come, all of you, as you are, join your life to Jesus, and in so doing, join your life to God. The Trinity is an open small group. The Trinity is an open lunch table. They're not the mean girls saying, stay away. Anybody can sit at the table with them. All who come humbly like a child, draw near to God, and He draws near to you. This is an invitation into true personhood, true reality. Why? Because it's an invitation into love, into true love. Do you understand that if God is not a trinity, He cannot also be love? God is love, 1 John says. Do you remember? If God is a monad, in other words, if he's, if he's a singular, he is one God, but if he was only one person in eternity past, who would he have loved? Who would have loved him? But because God is a trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, he has eternally loved Father-loving Son, Son-loving Father, Father-loving Spirit, Spirit-loving Father, Son-loving Spirit, Spirit-loving Son. God is love. That's what you are invited into. The greatest community, the greatest family, the greatest sharing the cosmos has ever known. Come to it. And in finding love, find life. Find personhood. Find reality. Ultimate reality. But how? How do I make it into the great dance of the Trinity, as C.S. Lewis called it. How do, how do I enter into that waltz? Come to me. Number three, disciple-making is an invitation to find rest in our gentle and lowly Savior. Jesus says, come to me. He didn't say, come to God. Because He is God. <laughs> come to me is come to God. He didn't say, come to my teachings, come to my example, come to my miracles, come to my code of ethics, come to my mantra. He didn't say any of that. He said, come to me, a person. Because you see, if Jesus said, come to my teachings or come to my example, he's inviting us right back where we started, isn't he? Right back to human and earthly wisdom and understanding. 
law-keeping. Be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Come to the person of Christ. This is union. This is Paul's theology of union with Christ. Enter into Christ. Come to Him. Yoke yourself to Him. Why? Why Him? Why Jesus? Why Christ? Who's this guy? Why is He so important? Because before you could ever come to Jesus, He came to you. Before you could ever yoke your life to His, He yoked His life to ours. Before we could ever enter into His rest, He entered into our striving. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. He took up the yoke of humanity, our work, our debt, our burden, our guilt, our shame, our frailty, our depression, our anxiety, our loneliness, our inability, our chaos. He took it all. He attached his life to it. He became sin who knew no sin. He became the curse for us, Galatians 3 says. He entered into our work so that we could enter into His rest. Come and find rest. I will give you rest. Not I will sell you rest. I will loan you rest. I'll show you how, it's not even this, I'll show you how to find rest. He didn't even say that, did he? I'll give you six steps to rest. That's not what he said. Come to me and I will give you free of charge rest. Soul rest. Deep inner peace. This is not a transaction. This is not something that's for sale. This is pure rest. Rest from your striving. Rest from your earning. Rest from your guilt. Rest from your shame. Rest from proving yourself. Rest from chasing after everything. Rest from rule following, from selfishness, from despair. Rest from insecurity. Rest from your anger. Rest from your control. Rest from having to self-actualize. Rest from all the futility of this life. This is his mission, this is his mandate, and it is his pleasure. He wants to do it. He wants to give you rest by sharing his easy and light yoke. Why is it easy? Why is it light? Because he is gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only place in all of the Gospels, 89 Gospel chapters, this is the only place where Jesus describes his heart. And when Jesus takes a moment to tell us what is at his core inner self, Jesus, who are you? What is on your heart I am gentle and lowly.
Wow. He is gentle. He is meek. He is lowly. He is humble. Jesus is so open, so accessible, so kind, so good, so tender, so welcoming, so loving. It's who he is. We don't have to convince him to be gentle and lowly. It's his heart. He wants you. He loves you. He would do anything for you. Jesus is the most understanding person in the whole universe. We, I think that sometimes we think that Jesus sees us like the brood ex cicadas, right? That's what humanity is to him. Kind of loud and annoying, a little bit gross, <laughs> awkward and stupid, right? They're constantly flopping on their backs and they can't even flip back over. Sitting on my porch the other day, a cicada just flew into the side of the house and died. <laughs> I was like, what? What are these insects? We think that that's how Jesus sees us. When will this be over? When are they going to be gone? Why are they constantly bothering me? No. No. Not at all. You see, Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross. What was the one thing that Jesus didn't have before the cross? What do you get the guy who has everything? What's the one thing he didn't have? You. Me. We were the one thing he didn't have yet. He had the universe. He had the Trinity. But he wanted you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. His heart is our green pasture and still waters. He always enjoys our presence. He's always happy to help. His heart is never drained. He never needs a break. He's never stressed out. He didn't read that book on boundaries and say, I better start setting some boundaries with these people. Jesus is the head who loves and cares for his own body. Jesus is the groom who loves his princess bride. You, me. You say, well, Brady, what about my sin? What about our sin? Isn't Jesus holy? Isn't he mad about our sin? Isn't he angry? Isn't he sour and bitter and frustrated? Isn't he constantly exhausted by our sin? Doesn't he just barely tolerate us? Ortland says, that it is quite possible that Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sins you are committing, but the way you see God when you sin. That you think that when you sin, that God is repulsed by you now. That is Satan's victory. That suddenly you think God is against you. That suddenly you think that God is cringing away from you. That you think that you can actually be far from God or away from God or out of fellowship with God. That's Satan's victory. To go down in pain and anguish is to descend into the very heart of Christ. God's holiness, all through Scripture, God's holiness has always moved him towards people, never away. Isaiah stood in front of God and said, 
and they said, they sang, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And what did God do next? Did he say, that's right, get out. No, he moved towards Isaiah with a hot coal. When Peter was on the boat after the great catch of fish, and he looked up at Jesus and he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Jesus said, that's right, Peter. It's about time you figured it out. Get out of my sight. No. Jesus' next words to him were, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Stick with me, kid, because I'm sticking with you. God's holiness has always moved him towards us. Jesus delights to intercede for us. The Father delights to say yes to Jesus. Jesus sympathizes. Hebrews says Jesus sympathizes with us. He, he has felt everything we feel, all of our pain, all of our temptation, all of our sorrow, all of our suffering. He has blazed the trail. He is our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 5 says that, that Jesus deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Wayward meaning rebellious. Listen, those two words pretty much sum up every day of my life. Everything I do is either because I'm ignorant or I'm rebellious. Not everything. But every sin, right? Hebrews 5 says that God deals gently with us when we are ignorant and wayward. He's rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our shame, our regret is where God's mercy dwells. Our shame is what He most loves to work with. This morning, will you repent and let Jesus love you? Will you repent and let Jesus love you? Come. Come. Don't delay. Come. Don't deny. Come. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Brady, you don't know what I've done. I've done big sins. I've done long sins. I am a great sinner. And to that I say Jesus is standing with open arms of great grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, doesn't it? Come right now. Come right now. Confess. Confess your need of Him. Take on the status of a child. Receive His gentle and lowly acceptance, forgiveness, and grace right now. Come to Jesus. Come right now. In your heart, cry out. Jesus, I come. I need you. I'm tired. I'm tired of chasing. I'm tired of performing. I'm tired of feeling like I'm a failure. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need someone to love me unconditionally, no matter what. Come. Invitation number four. Disciple-making is an invitation to yoke yourself to Jesus. But wait, Brady, isn't a yoke a burden? <laughs> it's like a, a work tool. 
You, you, you attach it to animals and then they go out and they plow a field. They got to they earn their keep. Yeah. Jesus is definitely, um, like Joe taught us last week, a lot of what Jesus says is shocking. It's kind of like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. A yoke that's easy? No such thing, Jesus. <laughs> a yoke, a, a, a tool of labor that is rest? No such thing, Jesus. And Jesus saying, yeah, there is. <laughs> it's me. It's my life. You see, we're all yoked to something, aren't we? We're all chasing some dream, something that will satisfy us, but it's actually just enslaving us. By the way, side note, parents, when you tell your children, follow your dreams, all you've done is you've yoked them to something that will defeat them. That's just, that's just my two cents. Right? You've just, you just made them a slave to their own self. And their dream will probably, if you're like me, their dream's going to change 80 times, you know, between 8 years old and 51 years old. Okay, back to the sermon. <laughs> Jesus offers us a yoke of bondage that is actually freedom. Why? Because it's a yoke of receiving a yoke of receiving. Many have pointed out that often what they would do is they would, they would take an older, stronger ox that's plowed the field many times, and they would take the young, new ox, and they would yoke him to the older ox, right? So that when they go out to plow the field, all the young ox is doing is he's just looking at the old ox going, yep, <laughs> let's keep moving. Now. Oh, we're turning left? Okay, let's turn left. Oh, we're turning right? Let's turn right. right? That's our life with Christ. Christ isn't inviting us into escapism here. He's not inviting us into passivity here. He's showing us a whole new way to live our life. He wants us to actually live a life, to get out there and do and, and live and serve and care and love. But it's from rest. We work from rest, don't we? Let me ask you a question. Are you living for Christ or from Christ? Can you hear the difference? Are you living for the love of Christ or are you living from the love of Christ? Are you living for the smile of God or are you living from the smile of God? Are you living for the acceptance of God or are you living from the acceptance of God? It's two very different ways to live, isn't it? A lot of Christians are living for Jesus. That's a yoke that might destroy you. Live from Jesus. Live from Jesus. See, when you figure that out, when you can hear what I'm saying and you can see the difference, that's when you know, okay, now I'm understanding rest, what it means to rest in Jesus and then get to work. How do I know that I'm yoked to Jesus, Brady? Because then you too are also gentle and lowly. You become gentle and lowly too. Christian, you can be gentle and lowly. 
Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Galatians 5, 23, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Ephesians 4, 2, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. Same two words. Lowliness and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There's our two words again. Gentle and lowly. Same two Greek words. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves. James 1.9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 3, 15, are witnessing, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. One more. Listen carefully. Titus 3, 1 through 5, Paul says to Titus, Remind them, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, greatest word in the Bible, <laughs> but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, the appearing goodness and loving kindness of God, the manifested loving, and kind, uh, loving kindness of God is Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What happens when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior? We receive rest. What happens when we receive rest? 
We become gentle and lowly. We become meek and humble. Has the gentle and lowly Savior entered into your life? Come, come to Him. Have you found rest this morning in your gentle and lowly Savior? Will you submit to His gentleness, His lowliness? Will you allow gentleness and humility to flow out of you? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we confess it's hard to wrap our minds around this. You're God. You're God. You're the King of heaven, high King of heaven. You're supreme. You're the creator. You're holy. You're perfect. You're so righteous. You're so glorious. You're so beautiful. We can't even look at you. And yet you are gentle and lowly. How do we do it? Jesus did it because he knew that all things had been given unto him. And in Christ, we know that all things have been given unto us. Jesus, I pray for that heart right now that needs to come to you. Come all who are weary, heavy burdened. God, show us our burden right now. Reveal the burden. Show the heaviness of it. Push down on it if you need to. God, I pray for that heart that's resisting you right now. Soften it. Soften it. May they come to you. Jesus, you stand with arms wide open. Whoever comes, you will never cast aside. You will never turn away. You'll never turn your back. You'll never say no. God, this is not an audition. God, this is not American Idol. You're not going to tell us to try for another year and come back later. You're going to look at us and say, come, come to me, find rest. God, for every Christian in this room who's lost sight of the rest of Jesus, may they find it again fresh. May it be fresh water on their tongue this morning. May it be a, a, a breath of fresh air this morning. Jesus, may your kindness May your kindness move us to repentance. God, would you make us a gentle and lowly people, a gentle and lowly church. We've spent the past couple weeks fighting for what we want. God, we spent the last couple weeks trying to defend our position. Man, that's a burden. That's a burden. God, make us gentle. Make us lowly. Make us patient. Make us loving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.